Well, good morning, church. Many of our friends in our state have been breathing breaths of relief as uh, Hurricane Dorian passed us by, but at the same time, our neighbors to the east in the island of uh, several of the islands of the Bahamas have just had their worlds rocked. And so I'd like to encourage you to continue uh, steadfastly in prayer for our neighbors um, who are really hurting right now. Um, I'd also encourage you to consider giving to Baptist Global Response. This is what they do, uh, disaster response internationally, as well as community development. I had the privilege of, of, of both receiving BGR's help when I served in Central Asia, as well as actually serving with BGR later for several years, helping coordinate the medical side of disaster response work in a number of different countries and, and after certain disasters. And, and I know that they are going to do a great job not only providing physical aid, but pointing people to Christ in the midst of, of, of their hardship and of their recovery. They'll also stick around long after the television cameras are gone, and they're going to turn the aid work very quickly into community development work, which often leads to church planning work. And they're going to do their best to work through local churches and enhance their standing in their community. So I encourage you to go online. Uh, their website's baptistglobalresponse.org or gobgr.org, or you can just Google Baptist Global Response. Uh, but let's continue to pray that God would be glorified through this. Um, so, many, so many have lost so much. Uh, and, and, you know, the church has quite a history in the Bahamas, but there's a lot of nominal Christianity. So let's pray that God would use this to, to call many to himself and many back to himself. Well, yesterday, my dad, myself, and two of my kids went and saw a movie. And rarely will I actually recommend a movie because you can get into big trouble doing that as a pastor. Um, I reference them sometimes without giving them my actual recommendation. Uh, but this is a movie I would like to recommend to you, and it's called Overcomer. How many of you have seen this so far? So a number of you have seen it. If you haven't, I recommend it to you. The, the gospel is clearly uh, shown in the movie uh, as well as just, uh, there's, it's just a great story. And there's a scene, a poignant scene towards the beginning of the film in which a former drug addict who is now kind of uh, suffering the consequences of his sin in a hospital, he's blind, he's actually dying of diabetes. His name is Thomas and he loves Jesus, all right. He challenges uh, a Christian school coach, basketball coach, by asking him, what is your identity? Actually, the way he asks the question is, who are you? Where do you find your identity? And, and so John, the basketball coach, said the first thing that he thinks of is, well, I'm a basketball coach. And I'm a teacher. And he listed a number of things. And Thomas had to prompt him. And what else? Oh, I'm a, I'm a Christian. That, af that, that came after being a white American male, by the way. All right? And the whole point here was... What is your identity and how far down that pecking order does being a disciple of Jesus come or being a child of God come? And Thomas wisely tells John, your identity will be whatever you tie your heart to. Your identity will be whatever you tie your heart to. And we've already seen in Romans, in his verbose introduction, that Paul's identity is as a disciple of Jesus. In fact, he uses in verse 1 the term slave. We, we read in the ESV servant, but the actual Greek word would better be translated slave. I'm a 
Paul says, I'm a slave of Jesus. Now, I, w- I, want, I want us to stop and just think for a moment uh, and remember who Paul was and what background he came from. You know, since, since youth, he had been a very religious guy, but he had been an enemy of God. You know, you can be very religious and an enemy of God at the same time. That's who Paul was. He had been a, a Pharisee who hated Jesus Christ, who had done all he could to stop the, the, this message of the gospel being transferred to people's hearts by persecuting Christians. So remember that before Paul was the great apostle and messenger to the Gentiles of the gospel, he had been a persecutor of Christians. He destroyed families and ravaged the church. And I don't think that ever left the back of his mind. And that's why he delighted in the gospel. So do you feel unworthy this morning? Maybe you're sitting here and you're feeling unworthy based on something you did this last week or this last year. And if that's you, Paul could clearly identify, okay? But God uses sinners. God makes sinners trophies of his grace, and he uses them for his kingdom. So people who've experienced God's grace are all about the gospel. What made Paul tick? What we see in this text this morning that made Paul tick is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he writes in these these beautiful two verses, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, for it is written, the righteous shall live for faith, or by faith. So many scholars would say that these two verses are actually the thesis statement for the entire book. Everything that follows is really an exposition of these two verses. And so I'd like for us this morning to unpack these two very important verses by keying in on five phrases. And we're going to walk through those and um, I invite you to, to follow the listening guide, which will follow inside your, your bulletin. There's a couple blanks that might help you uh, kind of st- keep tracking. And the very first phrase that we're going to unpack is, I am not ashamed. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Well, why would Paul be ashamed? Well, there, there's a clear reason. The gospel was a stumbling block to Jews and it was considered foolishness by the Greeks. By the way, when we, when we read Greek here, it doesn't mean you, you've got to have a, a, a last name with like, you know, Olas or something like that, right? Um, it means everyone who's not a Jew, okay? Gentile, like all of us or most of us in this room who are not ethnically Jewish here would be considered by Paul to be Greeks, right? So the gospel was considered foolishness by the world. So people in Paul's day certainly would mock him for proclaiming it. If you're reading an ESV study Bible, by any chance, you can look down in your, in your notes, and, and it says this. It says, because of their lack of size, fame, or honor in the Roman corridors of power and influence, Christians might be tempted to be ashamed of the Christian message. So, was Paul himself ever ashamed of the gospel? What do you think? Well, in his letter, his introduction to the Corinthians... He acknowledged that the gospel is foolishness 
to unbelievers. She says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Paul had warned his disciple Timothy not to give in to shame. In 2 Timothy 1.8, he said, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God. So was Paul ever tempted, do you think, in this way towards shame? In my, in my reading this week, I came across some words from a Scottish pastor, James Stewart, from Edinburgh, Scotland. And he said, there's no sense in declaring that you're not ashamed of something unless you've been tempted to feel ashamed of it. Well, have you ever been ashamed of the gospel? Have you ever been embarrassed, youth, when someone has seen you reading your Bible? Maybe you've closed it or kind of hidden it away, or maybe you kind of prefer to have it on your iPhone so nobody will know what you're actually looking at. Or kids, when you've been at a restaurant and your family has been praying, bowing together to give God thanks for the food, have you ever kind of opened your eyes because you're worried that people might be looking at you funny? Have you ever kept quiet in a conversation with somebody at work? Where, or in your neighborhood, maybe. Where the, 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 the conversation's turned and you've even sensed the Holy Spirit kind of whispering in your ear, this is the moment, this is an opportunity, right? Maybe someone asks you, hey, why would you do something like that? You must be a good person. And, and, and it's perfect to say, hey, actually, it's not my righteousness, it's, it's the fact that God has changed my heart, but instead you change the subject because of shame towards the gospel. Well, shame, or I, I should say scorn, for the gospel is a real part of our own society. It is prevalent today, and it is formidable. You can't overcome scorn or shame by pretending that it doesn't affect you. You can overcome shame by being overwhelmed by the gospel. We need to pray for the empty churches of Europe, right? I mean, the, the continent of Europe, if you've, if you've traveled, there are some magnificent cathedrals, places where thousands of, churches, of, of Christians throughout the ages have gathered to worship God and to, to, to glorify the name of Christ. And today, if you darken the door of one of those churches on a, on a Sunday morning, you, you'll, be, you'll be hard-pressed to find maybe 50 people in this giant cathedral built for five to 10,000, right? We need to pray for the Church of Europe. Why are they so empty? Well, I'll tell you what I think. I think they're empty because over time, especially after World War I, they became ashamed of the gospel. And they stopped preaching it. They watered things down. They started teaching deism. That yeah, there's a God, but he's far away. Not that really interested in you or not that available to you. So moralism is what matters, right? That we just all love each other. And that is important. We should love each other. But they started teaching that, that all paths lead to the sea. And so the, the Muslim and the Hindu and the, the secularists, we're all in the same boat we're all going to heaven because God loves all of his children. So they, they watered down the gospel. And so why go to church if God is far away and not available to you? Why waste your time with that when your automatic destination for everybody is heaven? There, there are better things to do than to 
go through religious formalism if God is not really relevant to your life. So Jesus warned us to not be ashamed of the gospel, which meant that he understood that his followers, that's us, would face this very real temptation. Jesus said in Mark 8, 38, for whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So we've got to each ask ourselves, are we ashamed of God? I don't want God to be ashamed of me. Well, Paul declares here, and he may do it with a prayer like, God help me in his heart, that I am not ashamed of the gospel. That's our second phrase that we're going to look at in this text. Well, what is the gospel that we should not be ashamed of? Do you know the word gospel means good news? Beth and I have a friend named Kendria, Kendria Burroughs, and about 15, maybe 17, 18 years ago, we took a, uh, a group of youth on a missions trip to Grand Bahama Island, and we met Kendria. She was the site manager there, okay? So we spent a week with her, got to know her a bit, and then kind of forgot about her. And then years later, like maybe 10 years later or five years later, we bump into her in Turkey. So she was serving as a, as, a, as a worker in Turkey, incredibly, and then years later, we bump into her again in Louisville, South Carolina, where she was a member of our church. So a small world, isn't it? Especially within the family of faith. So we, we really got to know Kendria well in, in, um, in Louisville, because we were there for a year, and, and so she would come and watch her kids and stuff. And, and so Kendria uh, has been obviously very um, distraught through th- with this storm. So she's teaching in the United States. Uh, her family's back on Grand Bahama Island. And so it was several days that she did not know whether her family, even her parents, her mom and dad, had survived the storm or not, or what the status was of their home. And so she found out on, on Wednesday that her family was safe. Now that was, the go- that was gospel. That was good news, okay? The gospel is really good news that you should rejoice over. So is the gospel good news in your heart this morning? Is it good news to you? You know, we live in a, in a twisted world in which people don't want to hear the gospel because they don't want to acknowledge the problem that the gospel contains or, or that it presupposes. And that problem is that there is a just God who is angry at sin. And so the good news of the gospel is that there is salvation, that God himself, in a very costly way for himself, provided a means of salvation. But that is insulting to humanism. That there's something wrong with us. That we are not, in a sense, God. And so what can happen is the gospel can start to feel to us like it might not really be good news because people don't really like hearing it in their natural state unless they're convinced that there is a God and that they fall short of his glory. So we have to ask ourselves the question when we think about is the gospel good news for us? What informs how we perceive truth? Is it the culture around us? Is it all the noise that we hear from the media? Or is it the Bible, God's word? 
his revelation to us. Well, Paul doesn't equivocate. The gospel is good news. So what exactly is the gospel? If you had 30 seconds on an airplane, this is a question that I like to ask folks who are going through Discover Rocky, by the way. So if you're, if you're signed up for these next couple weeks or if you sign up in, 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 in October, uh, you get a little preview right now, okay? I'm going to ask you this question. You, if, if you're on an airplane and you're over the Atlantic and suddenly the lights come on and, and you know, the, your plane, maybe, let's just say you're in, you look out the window and the engine's on fire and you look out the, the other one and that engine's on fire and suddenly you are plummeting out of the sky and you know that you have 30 seconds of life left, right? Uh, you got your oxygen mask, maybe you stuck it on, maybe you took it off for a minute so you could say something. And, and let's say the person sitting next to you says, what must I do to be saved? And you have 30 seconds. Time for maybe one verse. What would you say? How would you explain the gospel? Turn to the person next to you. You got 30 seconds. Share the gospel with the person sitting next to you. And share one verse. Go. Hope we had a bunch of salvations just now. You know, it takes a nanosecond to actually go from darkness to light, uh, to, to believe in Jesus Christ. What, what verses did you share? Just shout them out. John 3.16, right. We all quoted that a little while ago. Thank you, Chris. Ooh, all right, the deep stuff. What else? Romans 10.9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. All right? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, as Paul told the, the Philippian jailer, and you shall be saved. Anybody say Romans 5.8? All right, all right. But God shows his love for us. Shows, shows, demonstrates his love for us in that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us, when I'm, and I'm going to get into these more later in the next few weeks, and we're actually going to get a chance to, to see points one and two in, very, in the next couple weeks' sermons as, as Paul gets into the problem of sin and God's justice, right? And the fact that we're all in this same boat. But when I'm trying, if I had a little more than 30 seconds, all right, there's five basic points that I want to make sure that people understand. The first is that God made you. He is the creator God of everything that exists, right? Spoken by the word of his power, and boom, it was created, right? And that gives him ownership rights. So God made you for a relationship with himself even. But number two, you, and when I say you, I mean me too, right? We have sinned against him. We have rebelled against him. And so there is bad news. Uh, the wages of sin is death. But there is wonderful use, and that's number three, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins in our place. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more this morning, and rose from the dead. And then point four, what you must do 
You can, you must be saved through faith in Jesus Christ. And number five is, is really discipleship, and that is those who are saved, those who are, whose lives are changed through faith, must now live for Christ. If he's your Savior, he's your Lord. You can't split him in half. If we Christians thought, you know, the gospel is not just for unbelievers. It's not just a, a formula that you share with, with your neighbor. The gospel is something that we need to meditate on as Christians, and we should be sharing the gospel with ev- each, 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 each other every day. If we Christians thought about the gospel more, do you know that we would be anxious less? If we thought about the gospel more, we would be depressed less? Can, can Christians be depressed? Yeah. They certainly can. In fact, depression, in a, in, a, in a sense, really show for the Christian, it actually shows an accurate understanding of a fallen world that we live in. Right? But by meditating on the gospel, we understand that, that what, this fallen world that we're in right now, with, with suffering, all right, that maybe we're going through right now, or maybe we fear going through, that is not the end for the Christian. That is a temporal reality, and glory awaits So we would be depressed less if we meditated on the gospel. We would be angry less. We would be lustful less. Do you know that instead of seeing that person as a body for our mental gratification, we would see that as a soul, a a, a young woman or, or a man to pray for, to pray for his family. We would certainly envy less if we Christians thought about the gospel more. We would be more united as the body of Christ. You know, some Christians, and maybe you do, I certainly have, struggled with nightmares, with difficulty sleeping. Well, the gospel is the cure for that, like meditating on the gospel. The gospel is the cure for loveless marriages. Can, can Christians find themselves sometimes in a loveless marriage? Yes, they can't. And that is one of the most painful things that I can think of to endure. But the gospel can enable you to forgive, to turn bitterness and frankly hatred into love for your spouse, even if they're not really deserving of it yet. And the gospel can redeem even the most miserable marriage. The gospel is the cure Meditating on the gospel is the cure for feeling like a failure. Don't put your hand in the air, but have, have any of you ever felt like a failure? Okay, feel free to put your hand in the air. Okay, mine's up. If our identity is in Jesus, then our identity is not wrapped up in our job performance or how much of a mark we've made in this world for whatever. The gospel is the cure. Meditating on the gospel for the Christian is everything. So Paul tells us here why he is not ashamed of the gospel. That's our third point. For it is the power of God. It's not our own human wisdom. It's the gospel is the power of God. This comes from a Greek word dunamis, where we get a couple other words like dynamite or dynamic, right? The gospel is the power of God for salvation. Forgiveness, freedom from sin and condemnation. It's the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. 
So it's not universalism. Everybody is saved no matter what they believe or know. No, the gospel is the power of God for, for salvation for everyone who put their faith in Jesus Christ. That Jesus is Lord. That he is God's only begotten son who died on the cross for your sins and for mine and rose from the dead. Now let me ask you a question. Look at verse 16 and 17, our text this morning. How many times can you find the word faith in these two verses? Have a look at it real quick. Everybody count them up and just shout out the answer when you get it. How many times do you find the word faith? Three. Okay, I heard three. Any, anybody want to differ? Well, the right answer is four, actually. The word, the word faith is actually used four times in these two verses, which means faith is very important. In verse 17, you have the word faith used three times. And in verse 16, we have the word faith used once. And that is, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who faiths in Jesus. That's what it actually says. The problem is, we don't have the word faith as a verb in the English language. And so the Greek word, which is pisteo, which is this, from the noun root pistis, is, is, is translated belief. And the problem in our culture is that through the, 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 the uh, well, basically the word believe has kind, of been, uh, is, has kind of been neutered, so to speak, to where we think of it as just mental assent. But this is important because you need to know that you're saved, and that is if I believe, if I trust in Jesus. But the word believe in bi the biblical language is the exact same word as the word to lean on or, or trust with all your heart, to faith in Jesus Christ. And so certainly mental assent is part of that. But to have faith in Jesus means to give him your heart, for him to become your significance and your confidence, and the only one in whom you are trusting for salvation. So faith is living and powerful and breathing, and ultimately is bestowed on us through the power of the Holy Spirit. So the meaning of belief there in verse 16 is to depend on, to trust your heart to Jesus Christ. And, and so the gospel is the power of God. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. In other words, for all peoples. The Jews were God's first chosen people. And now God has revealed himself to all of humanity. To all of the Greeks, all of the Gentiles, all of us. The gospel is the power of God. It saves souls. It transforms lives, and it even transforms cultures and societies. You know, a lot of the, the blessings that we enjoy as a society have directly been influenced by the gospel. A lot of the values, even as our culture turns away from the gospel, we still hang on to a number of Judeo-Christian ethics that come from the gospel, like honesty and hard work and being neighbors, all of the good neighbors, all of these things come ultimately from the gospel. Even things that our society still values. Self-sacrifice. But you know that the gospel is transforming and preserving cultures today. And I want to talk a little bit about missiology with you for a minute here. Okay, the study of missions versus the study of cultural anthropology. And some of you may think, why in the world are you talking about this now um, uh, why are we geeking out with, with that stuff? Well, last week I, I shared with you a little bit about a young man named John Allen Chow who 
gave his life, maybe his execution could have been a little bit better, but his heart was right to try to go reach some unreached people in the Andaman Islands. And, and so in that, I, I actually shared an article written uh, by a, a journalist named Alex Perry in Outside Magazine, and it was called The Last Days of John Allen Chow. Well, in this, in this long article, he actually talks a little bit about missions work in these very islands in the past where John was going. So John was going to North Sentinel Island where no missionary, no, no, no Westerner has ever actually trod and survived. Okay, and the Indian government is actually protecting this little island from any outsider influence. But in this article, the, um, the, the writer talks about another island to the south in the Nicobar Islands, right? Uh, maybe, I don't know, 100 miles or so south of the Andaman Islands. Um, in the same kind of chain, actually closer to Thailand than to India. If you're swimming, you should start from Thailand instead of India, about 700 miles from India, but it's actually governed by the Indian government. Right. And so the, the accusation against missionaries that you'll find, uh, and it's becoming more mainstream, but it's been going on for a long time from cultural anthropologists, is that these missionaries are going over there and kind of, in a sense, colonizing people who are happy as clams in their, you know, in their own culture. We should leave them alone in their practice of animism or whatever, whatever belief they have. Uh, these, these folks are, are content. And by us going, that's the height of, of arrogance. And we're actually going to destroy these cultures. Okay? Um, I'll talk about this some next week when we get into total depravity. When Paul makes the argument that, that uh, basically the non-Jewish world uh, is completely depraved. And, and deserves God's wrath. Okay, we're going to see that in the rest of Romans chapter 1 next week. Uh, and, and then in chapter 2, he's going to talk about how the Jews are no better because they've had the law, but they've been, they've been falling short and be using the law for their own interest and been hypocritical. And so they're even under more wrath. Okay, in other words, we're all in the same boat. We're all in trouble. We need Jesus Christ. Okay, but let me read to you a little bit from this article about um, one such missionary from over a hundred years ago who went to one of these islands in this whole chain of islands. So he writes, John was fascinated by the story of John Richardson. Richardson was born Ha Chevka, the son of a Nicobarese chief. So Nicobar is an island south of the island where, where, John, um, where, 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 where John Allen Chaw went to to try to Bring, bring the gospel just this last year and was, was speared to death, we think. So this man named Richardson, named John, uh, named John Richardson, in 1896, he was baptized, re-Christianed, and educated at a Christian school in Myanmar. And so he, he returned to the Nicobar Islands to teach, translate the New Testament, and to lead the community during the Japanese occupation in World War II. And in the 1950s, he became a bishop and an Indian parliamentarian. Now, I'm still reading this article. Missionaries habitually claim that Christianity offers indigenous tribes a gateway to the modern world. In the Nicobars, it turned out to be true. Richardson's legacy today is a thriving community of Nicobarese lawyers, doctors, businessmen, and politicians who steer their people through the modern world while also preserving their culture. In the islands, missionary success in the Nicobars also contrasted with secular failure in the Andamans. Those are the islands to the north. Despite half a century of efforts by anthropologists and conservationists, 
The extinction of the Andamese remains an ever-present threat. The Jangil disappeared a century ago. The great Andamanese now numbers 51. The Ange, 101, and the Jarawa, 510, while the Sentinelese, that's the island that, that John Allen Shaw was trying to get to, numbers somewhere between 50 and 200. All four tribes are sequestered into their own small reserves, where all but the Sentinelese, because they're being protected from any kind of help by the Indians, Indian government, all but them are to varying degrees welfare dependent and in danger of losing their culture. The last speaker of any of the 10 great Andamanese languages died in 2010 at the age of 85. The best hope for the Ange at Dugon Creek seems to be a handout dependent status. Against that record, how long can the Sentinelese expect to last on an island 30 miles west of a city of 140,000 people in an archipelago earmarked by tourism developers as the New Thai Islands? Not long, says the anthropologist, who's not, not a Christian, by the way. What we're doing, this is what he says, what we're doing with the Sentinelese, we've already done with the other tribes, he says. Only the Nicobarese escaped and only because of the missionaries. In other words, to those who know the tribes best, John's mission did not spell the end of the Sentinelese. To them, he represented a possible means of survival. So my point is, the gospel is what still preserves our culture, and it's what transforms and is the only hope for all cultures. That's not very popular in the world of cultural relativistic anthropology, but that is the truth. So the gospel transforms culture, and it preserves culture. So let's look at verse 17 now. The gospel reveals the righteousness of God from faith for faith. So the righteousness of God is a, is a key phrase that, that um, many have written about. But it is both a quality of God and a gift from God. Luther, Martin Luther, rediscovered the doctrine of justification by faith through verse 17. He had always thought that the term the righteousness of God was God's attribute of condemning righteousness. And so as, as he later admitted in his heart, he hated God for it because he knew he stood no matter how hard he tried, he stood condemned under the wrath of this holy God. And this is true. The righteousness of God does include the attribute of condemning righteousness. And we're going to be looking at this in the next few weeks. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're going to study Paul's unpacking of our sin. In fact, the very next section shows why God is indeed righteous in his wrath against all people and why folks need to hear the gospel and to be saved. But Luther's life, and in fact the entire world, was transformed when he came to understand that God actually gives his righteousness to us. So his righteousness is not only a quality, but it is a gift. And that gift is based on the gift of Christ slain on the cross for us. And it is received through faith. You see, the gospel is the answer to the prophet Jonah's question. Now, Jonah asked the question for wrong motives. Jonah hated these people, right, that he had been sent to share the good news with. Um, and so he wanted God to judge them. But his question was fair enough. And that is, if God, if you are righteous, you can't just pardon the wicked. You can't just look 
the other way because your purity cannot mix with poison. That's what our sin is like. It's like a glass of water. Even if it's 99% pure, if you drop, if you put 1% of, of, of poison in there, you can't, you can't drink that water, right? That, that it is contaminated, and that's, that's us, and we're more than 1% poison. God being pure cannot tolerate our impurity, and Jonah understood that. So he's like, God, you can't just look the other way at the wickedness of the Ninevites. You can't just be merciful to them, because you would no longer be pure or just. What Jonah did not understand is what Paul is now proclaiming to us, and that is the gospel, the good news of the gospel, that the justice of God and the grace of God meet in the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ took on our unrighteousness, and through faith he gives us his righteousness. John Stott put it this way. He said, the righteousness of God is God's righteous initiative in putting sinners right with himself by bestowing on them a righteousness which is not their own but his. The righteousness of God is God's just justification of the unjust. His righteous way of pronouncing the unrighteous righteous in which he demonstrates his righteousness and gives righteousness to us. He has done it through Christ, the righteous one, who died for the unrighteous, as Paul will explain later. And he does it by faith when we put our trust in him and cry out to him for mercy. Now some theologians call this alien righteousness. Alien righteousness. Not not little green men. But righteousness that comes from outside us. It's not earned through religiousness or good works. But given and credited to us through faith. Paul writes in Romans 3, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Philippians 3, 9, and to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So Christian, I hope this encourages your heart. You might have had a rough week. You may be feeling depressed today, and part of that may be because of your own failure this last week. The good news is that when God looks at you, he doesn't see your failure. He sees the triumph of his son. He sees the righteousness of his son in you because of his grace. Now here's where I hope we'll apply this to our own lives as a church. A few weeks ago, we spent a little bit of time looking at at some of the last verses of James and where, where James talks about praying for the sick, right? And he says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. We talked about the importance of confessing sin not only to God but to one another not using each other as priests there's only one high priest that's Jesus but for the sake of transparency and accountability and encouragement and and here's what I want to encourage you to do when you when you do that when you pray for each other and and you got to have trusted relationships to do this 
But when you, when you pray for one another um, and, and you're praying for each other's areas of struggle, be, be honest, right? Don't just, don't ask for prayer to love him more fully. I mean, because, come on, we all need to love him more fully. Ask for prayer for the, 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 the sin of yelling at your wife or looking at pornography or things that maybe you're ashamed of and you've done and you need somebody to, to, to lovingly hold you accountable and to point you to, to the cross. But here's the next step. We need to remind each other that we are forgiven, that we are indeed righteous, right? If you're in Christ, your identity is not that of the addict. You are an overcomer. You are pure and righteous in Jesus Christ if your faith is in him. And we need to remind each other of that. Like when we confess our sins to each other, we need to remind each other that you are cleansed. You are forgiven. So go and sin no more. Well, there's this expression that we see here as well from faith for faith. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. Um, but there's a number of, of understandings here and what this means. I'll give you two that I think are both accurate. That is, faith grows in, our, in the Christian life. Right? It's not static. It grows from one degree to another. And the more that we meditate and the more that we proclaim the gospel to one another and to ourselves, the more our faith will grow. The deeper our faith will grow. But faith also spreads from one person to another. So faith grows from one degree to another. Faith spreads from one person to another. And finally we see here um, Paul closing this grand thought out. For the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now this, this is a quote from Habakkuk, from Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. And if you remember the story of Habakkuk, Habakkuk is a, a prophet who has been complaining to God of the unrighteousness of, of uh, the, the folks in Israel, right? And God responds and says, hey, I've seen it. Don't worry, the Chaldeans are coming. I'm going to use them to judge your people, wipe them out. Habakkuk's like, whoa, wait a minute. Um, how can you use people that are even more evil than we are to wipe us out and still be just? Well, God's response to Habakkuk um, is basically, don't worry, the Chaldeans are going to get theirs too. Um, but, he says, the way you survive this, the way you endure the tribulation that's coming is through faith. In Habakkuk 2.4, he, he says this. He says, behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. He's talking about unbelievers. But then he says, but the righteous shall live by his faith. So Paul takes this and he uses it to really communicate, I believe, two things. First of all, Justification by faith. The life of the justified, the righteous. Actually, this isn't justification by faith. This is actually the application as God gave Habakkuk. The life of the justified, the righteous, is one of faith. You endure hardship through faith. The, the Christian endures, lives life daily by faith. But also Paul spins this up to help us understand justification by faith. The Good News Bible translates this, he who is put right with God through faith shall live. Now, people debate, well, which is it? I, I say it's both, right? You are to live, the, the justified is to live by faith, 
But you are only justified through faith. He who is put right with God through faith shall live. Pastor Kent Hughes reflected on, on this text by saying, and particularly on the, the, this phrase, the righteousness of God. He says, think of how the righteousness revealed in Christ motivated Paul. It is possible for men and women to stand sinless before God. It is possible to know that one has eternal life. It is possible to be free from the frustration of trying to earn righteousness in heaven. The sole requirement is faith. Here is the greatest news ever proclaimed. So brother or sister, who are you? What is your identity? How do you find it? Who is Andrew Tidwell? Is he a realtor, husband, father, trustworthy dude with great people skills? Who is James Brincy? Is he a pilot, husband, father, super nice guy? Who is Troy Hamilton, pastor, former missionary, dad, husband? I, that's not who I am. That's not who my core identity is. I, first of all, I'm a sinner, redeemed by Jesus Christ. So I'm a child of God. I'm a disciple of his, saved by his grace alone, and entrusted with a gospel message for the world. And I pray that's who you are. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. May we delight in that every day. Lord, I pray that the noise of our culture and lots of lies would not dilute the power or the beauty of the gospel to our hearts. Father, I pray that daily we would confess the gospel to others, that we would remind each other of the truth of the gospel, and that we would share it boldly with those who need to hear it. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone in this room today who has, whose heart has not yet been transformed through this gospel message, that today would be the day of their salvation, that you would grant them repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. In his name I pray. Amen. Would you stand please?